tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, uh, one of the things that, that I'm kind of looking forward to is you're probably going to get in, in the not-too-distant future. We're going to be using a little more media and those types of things, and you're going to get some outlines and photos and all those kind of things, which, quite frankly, I just do not have time to prepare that end of it right now with all my other duties, and so... I'm kind of looking for you may may see me walking around with you know a pad and you know pointing at things or whatever I don't know I'm just excited about it tonight you'll be you know I may dress up in costume even I don't know you, you never know what can happen when I get all things going in one place tonight is really a vision from heaven. And it draws our attention back just a few verses, back to verses 9 and 10. And as I shared with you last time when we were in the first part of this chapter, verses 9 and 10 are the most complete description found in all of the Bible of God the Father in heaven. And so when you look at that passage of Scripture, and now we move on and we're going to pick up in verse 13 and we're going to take all the way to the the end of uh, verse 28. So, the, the rest of the chapter. As you look at this next passage of Scripture, we're seeing really the response to what has been said by the Antichrist. And this is so important for us because the response to God when the Antichrist begins to speak his pompous words is, I'll take care of that. And he's not going to get away with it forever. You know, sometimes we look at the world and we go, oh, you know, how long can God tarry? How long is this going to go on? Lord, are you going to just continue to let these things fester and stew and boil? And, you know, what what are you going to do about all this evil? Well, as we begin to see in this chapter, this has not gone unnoticed by God the Father. And in the very last days... The Son of Man is going to come to lay hold of what is rightfully His. Jesus is coming. And when He comes again to this earth, He's coming to take ownership of what's His. And He's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. He's not coming to be crucified. He's coming to take His victory dance. He's coming with us instead of for us. And so this picture that we find tonight is just this beautiful response from heaven to the Antichrist's plea, in essence, and and castigation uh, of all the things that the book of Revelation, all the way from chapter 6 to chapter 20, describing the tribulation of days, all all the things that, that hell will unleash on earth, doesn't frighten God in the slightest. He's got a plan. And so tonight, uh, the Son of Man. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Lord, we are so grateful to be able to come to this place tonight on a night that is seeped in darkness. Lord, as these children roam the streets tonight, Lord, some of them innocently looking for candy and some of them very not innocently looking for trouble. God, we pray that by your Spirit right now as we meet in this place that you'd be reaching into hearts and into minds and into homes and into families. Lord, that you would cause us as your church to be bold with our faith. 
Lord, that the lost might be found, that if there's one little lamb, one sheep, one coin, Lord, out there wandering right now, that your spirit could simply speak to God and and convince them of their sin and of your righteousness and of the impending judgment that will one day come against sin if they don't repent. God, that you would save the lost. And Lord, we thank you that, that really we're uh, more than conquerors through you who loves us. And we want everybody else to be conquerors too. And so God, use us uh, as you speak to us tonight. May we be emboldened by our faith in you. We trust you, Lord. We thank you. We love you. Speak now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13 here in Daniel 7. And I was watching in the night visions. And so Daniel is now actually awake. He's having a vision. He's had dreams. He is seeing these things as a reality. They're not just, you know, some cluster of things that he thinks in his head. What he sees, he sees. And whether he sees them as we would say in his mind's eye or whether he visibly sees them, we're not given any details as to whether which is the case. But but this is a vision from heaven. This is just as real as if you and I uh, went out and we looked and saw that the sky was dark and the stars were out. And he said, And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. And I want to draw your attention to this phrase. It often gets in the way of people's understanding of theology. Because it says, one like the Son of Man. When it's very, very clear, hear me well, it's very, very clear that who is being described is none other than Jesus Christ himself. But it says, one like the Son of Man. And I want to help you set it straight right here and right now. There is a reason it says like the Son of Man. Remember that this is nearly 600 years before Jesus will be crucified. So he is not yet incarnate, is he? And so he cannot already be the Son of Man. He is still the Son of God. He is still the one who will be the Son of Man, but he is not yet the Son of Man. He's still in heaven. He has not gone to earth. And so it is a picture of who Jesus will be when he is the Son of Man. And that's why it says what it says. People think, oh, it's an error in Scripture. No, it's not an error in Scripture. It's a very, very distinct, subtle nuance that provides a view into heaven to where we know this is true. Because if he had said it is the Son of Man, that would have actually been false. But in the Hebrew language, it says one like the Son of Man, because the Son of Man is coming 600 years later. Coming with the clouds of heaven. And so now back to the vision. So the right Messiah, Jesus the Lord, the one who will be crucified, Daniel actually sees 600 years in advance, talking about when Jesus will return to earth. Coming with the clouds of heaven. And notice he came to the Ancient of Days. So this is a very clear picture of there being at least two members of the Godhead. Amen? 
There is Jesus the Son, the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God and the Son of David, according to Scripture. And so Jesus comes to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, the one described there in verses 9 and 10, and they brought him, that would be the Son of Man, before him, the Ancient of Days. So there are two people in one place at one time, and Daniel sees them, and they're both called God. Very clear that God exists in at least two persons from this passage alone. And to him, that would be the Son of Man, notice this, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all of the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. And that is a sign to guess who? The Lamb of God the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus the Messiah, the Lord of hosts. And so this vision begins with Daniel beholding the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, and then one like the Son of Man comes, and to him is given the kingdom. Now do you get the picture of why Jesus throughout the New Testament, as his words are recorded, referred to his kingdom that would come? Because it wasn't there yet, and it still isn't fully here yet. It will one day be complete when he returns in this vision. This is a vision of things that are yet future. And so who is this one that's like the Son of Man Eighty-one times Jesus referred to himself as, guess what? The Son of Man in the Gospels. Every time he did that, every Jew would have completely understood exactly who he was talking about. And so people often say that Jesus never called himself God. And while the statement is true that he never said, hey, I am God, He equated himself to God a whole ton of times. And in so much that, as we're going to see in a few moments, not only did he equate himself to God and thereby say that he was, in effect, God, that he ultimately would be crucified, in essence, for that statement. That's why the Pharisees accused him of blasphemy. And so 81 times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels. And in the Gospels, in the, in, in the same writing, he, he's, he's given these three other titles that all begin with Son of something. Son of David. And each one of these things is a picture of a part of this kingdom that is to come, that's to be fulfilled by the Messiah. The Son of David would point to his earthly throne. Jesus' throne is on earth. People often say, well, his throne's in heaven. God's throne is in heaven. Jesus' throne is on earth. This is his kingdom. So God's throne is in heaven. Jesus has a place beside God the Father in heaven. But Jesus' throne is actually the throne of David, which is here on earth. And one day he will sit on David's throne in the temple in Jerusalem, which currently isn't there, by the way. And so one day the Lord will return as the son of David. He will return and fulfill that. As the son of God, as we see here, it points to his eternity. 
that as the Son of God, Jesus is now being given in this vision, in essence, the, the eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom that's without end. And when he came to earth, if you remember, he was talking to the disciples constantly about eternal things, and they were always somewhat befuddled. They were kind of like, oh, eternal, yeah, okay, well, you're going to live a while, but, you know, eternal, I mean, that's kind of, you know, I don't know about the whole eternal thing, got a little Messiah complex going on here. And it took him a while to figure out that he was talking about these passages of Scripture. And ultimately, he would actually speak directly to that issue and quote this passage of Scripture himself. And then as the Son of Man, it it, it equates to his relationship to us as the human race. And so what you have in these titles that Jesus has is called the Son of David, his earthly throne, the Son of God, which points to his, his place in heaven, and the Son of Man, which points to his relationship to us, you must have all three of those for him to be the Messiah. If he only has any one of them, if he only has any two of them, then he is not the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Because if he is not uh, uh, the heir to David's throne, he does not fill the Old Testament covenants. If he is not the son of man, then he is not like us and cannot die for our sins. And if he is not God's son, then he's not God at all. And so it takes all of these names combined together that point to who he is. Furthermore, through the Son of Man's incarnation, as Jesus came, everybody knows, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen? So Jesus is the Word. He's the, he's the literal spoken word of God. And so in order for God to come to earth, God had to become a man. And so he's fully man, fully God. Jesus says in this passage, the son of man. He said the one that would come and be man and God at exactly the same time. We call that the hypostatic union. That it, Jesus was fully God and at the same time fully man. We don't really understand that. Somebody ever tells you that they can fully under, give you a complete understanding of how Jesus was fully man and fully God at the same time, they're, they're just blowing smoke. I haven't met anybody yet that can do it, including Pastor Chuck. So at the Son of Man's incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, we have all these beautiful Old Testament pictures that that we have of who the Messiah would be when he would come. So as Daniel sees this, what he's seeing is the completion of all of these things that were said in the Old Testament about Jesus the Messiah, the one who would come. You probably, many of you know the story of the kinsman redeemer. There were three things that have to happen with the kinsman redeemer. In Leviticus chapter 25, the kinsman redeemer would redeem the land. Uh, the redeeming of the land was a necessary part of the, of the son of man. The second part of that is he would redeem his brother back from a voluntary slavery. That was a physical part of being the son of man. The third part was that he would be the avenger of the blood uh, of his brother who was wrongly slain. Those are all part of Jesus being a man, being incarnate on this earth. If he doesn't do those things, then what was said about 
the, the Messiah in the Old Testament is not true. And so the Son of Man that, that here Daniel sees uh, is none other than Jesus who is the Christ. Uh, this is the only place in the entire Old Testament that this phrase is actually used in context. And so it's a very important passage of Scripture by the time uh, we get to the New Testament because Jesus himself equates himself to the Son of Man in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24 and, and also chapter 26. And so as Jesus takes that title and says, I'm him, he's saying, I'm God. And if you, you want to turn or you can, but you don't need to. It says there in chapter 24, it says, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and great, great glory. That's exactly what Daniel saw. That's exactly what Daniel saw. Uh, Mark's gospel records it this way in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Matthew 26 says, In the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And so now you can see this is a picture of Jesus the Son and God the Father. And that one day the Son of Man is going to come back to this earth uh, to rule and reign in righteousness as, as is his right. And so the article, the, that's used here points to Jesus as the one who saw that Daniel saw in this vision. He says, the one. Notice, it says in Matthew's gospel, it says in Mark's gospel, you will see the. Remember, in our passage in Daniel 7, it says, one like the Son of Man. But Jesus changes it up and says, the Son of Man. He's referring to Daniel 7. He's saying the one that Daniel prophesied of, the one that was like the Son of Man, I'm him. Son of man, savior of the world. He's also the king of kings. And, and so if you, if you really put all these things together, what you ultimately end up seeing is that Jesus is declaring through this vision given to Daniel that when he gets to the, the incarnation and people are talking to him and he equates himself to this one, he's saying, I'm the one that was talking to God the Father in heaven. I was there with them. Notice that in this passage of Scripture, these things were given to the Lord. Notice the things that it says here about his kingdom. It says that he will be to all peoples, nations, and languages that they should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed. That's eternal. Amen? That's kind of contrasting what the Antichrist and the devil are going to do because they try and take their kingdom, amen? They try and steal it. They say, we're going to kill everybody. We're going to pretend that we're good, but we're really not good. We're going to wipe out the earth. We're going to lie to them. We're going to create a world government and a world religion and a world monetary system. We're going to make everybody love us. We'll tell them what they want to hear. And then when we get them weak, we'll take it from them. And yet, from heaven's perspective, God's just going, it's my son's. I'm going to give it to him. It's his. There are four proofs, actually, here in this passage, in these couple of verses. In other words, God had 
given, given to Jesus what he won't give away. God doesn't give away his sovereignty, does he? So if Jesus isn't God, what did God just do? God just gave away his sovereignty. So Jesus has to be God because he would have given away as rule and dominion a part of his kingdom because God owns everything. Amen. So if God owns everything and he just gave part of it away, God's no longer God and Jesus isn't God either. So it has to be God in both places. It has to be that Jesus is God, the Messiah is God, the Son of Man is God, and God is God. It's the only way it can stay in the family, so to speak. And so Jesus is given what God will not give away. He doesn't give away his authority. He doesn't give away his glory. He doesn't give away his sovereign power. But yet he does that to the Son of Man. He says, I'm giving my power to you. So they're now equivalent. So Jesus is God. God remains God. He's worshipped. He says, you're going to be worshipped. And yet God alone is worthy of worship. So it's declaring by this that the Son of Man also is God because he's going to be worshipped. He's given an everlasting kingdom. These four things. Only God's kingdom is everlasting. Only God dwells outside of space and time. Only God is the uncreated creator of everything else. And so when he says your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, again he's saying your kingdom is my kingdom, and thereby he is God. It's so important to get this, because if you get this, then when you get to the New Testament, and somebody says, well, Jesus wasn't God. Oh, yes, he was. Go read Daniel 7. Because Daniel 7 says that the one who takes possession of the earth's kingdom is God. And he's like the Son of Man. In other words, he's going to be actually so at the incarnation. And so as we look at this passage, it just becomes so clear that the Lord is giving us this picture of deity that will come to earth and possess this kingdom, and one day is coming back to take possession of what God in Daniel 7 gave him. So in Daniel 7, the vision goes forth. So from God's perspective, it's a done deal. The kingdom of earth belongs to Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. The Ancient of Days... The Son of Man seen as separate persons at the same time, same place, by a single individual. The only way that you can do that if there's two, not one, two. You remember as the Sanhedrin was, was in essence, trying Jesus illegally, if you will, and Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He was referring to this passage in Daniel 7. And as he does that, any Jew of the day would have absolutely understood that he was referring to Daniel chapter 7. Because Daniel was a hero to the Jewish people. Daniel, Daniel survived the Babylonian captivity. He even prospered in the Babylonian captivity. And thereby, whatever Daniel said was a huge deal to the Jewish people. So the Sanhedrin uh, understood that. And so when Jesus said... The high priest, uh, there in Mark chapter 14, asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Do you remember what Jesus said? I am. And he used the phrase that could only equate himself to, to God himself. He says, I am. And then he goes on, if that wasn't enough, he already used, in essence, the covenant name of God in saying, I am. 
But just so they wouldn't misunderstand that, so that the Jews would get the point, he further goes on to say there in Mark 14, verse 61 to 64, and you will see the Son of Man using the name from Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, and then the high priest tore their clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you've heard the blasphemy, What do you think? Yes, Jesus called himself God. And that's how he did it. Didn't come right out and say, hey guys, I'm God. He said, first I am, and then he said, I'm also the Son of Man. I am not. You see, they could have been confused. He didn't didn't say, I am the Ancient of Days. He said, I am the Son of Man. And so he made it very clear exactly who he was. The one that would come from heaven to earth, that would leave and go. And you remember when Jesus was lifted up into heaven when he ascended. It says there in Acts chapter 1 that he will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. How did he go? He went up in the clouds of heaven. He's going to come back in the clouds of heaven, except when he comes back, Uh, We know that it's going to be a little bit different story because we're all coming with. Amen? Verse 15, And Daniel was grieved. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body. The visions of my head troubled me. And I came near to those who had stood by and asked him if this was all truth. And so Daniel now, in essence, is going to talk to an interpreter, if you will. I believe this interpreter happens to be an angel. And so Daniel is, is sitting there seeing these things, and he begins to converse with an angel. And so he told me and made it known to me the interpretation of these things. And he says in verse 17, Those great beasts, of which there are four, are four kings that arise out of the earth. And so he makes it really clear, hey, four kings, we've been doing this thing now for a while. It's the same four guys. It's the same world empires. It's the... Babylonians, it's the Medes, it's the Greeks, it's the Romans, it's them. Those are the four beasts. And he says, furthermore, he goes on, they will arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Does that kind of strike you as odd? Because what he's saying is those four kingdoms will rise. And of course he's talking about the fourth kingdom being Rome. Rome's gone right now. So what it means is the Roman kingdom has to come back. Because that's got to be the one that's left over at the end. That is the one with which whom the, the saints will actually receive the kingdom from. For then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. It was exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron. And notice a, a different statement is made now that's not found in the rest of the book of Daniel. And its nails of bronze with which it devoured and broke into pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up And before there were three, and namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth that spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellow. So it says the ruler of the final fourth kingdom, the Antichrist himself that we saw last time, is going to be speaking in the middle of this. And while I was watching, that same horn was making war against the saints. So it's now shifted over. This is a parallel passage to to the book of Revelation. 
to, in essence, what's going to occur uh, in Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 20. You know it is the tribulation, both halves, both the beginning of the tribulation of days, the time of Jacob's trouble, and the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of that time, which is going to be described here shortly. And it says that same horn was, was making war against the saints and pre- prevailing against them until... Huge word, circle it, underline it, until, look who's back on the scene. God says, I've had enough. The Ancient of Days came. Nothing is escaping the gaze of God. Not a thing is going on on this earth that's catching God by surprise. He's not going, man, I can't believe how brutal they are in the South Sudan. I... Boy, I sure don't know how the communists ever got in power in China and all that they've done to those poor people. And he isn't going to be caught by surprise with the rise of the Antichrist either. And so when the Antichrist comes on the scene, the response now, remember, this is a view of heaven. This is God's response. The Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. Hallelujah. God in heaven is sitting there watching everything that's going on. He sees it all, and He makes a judgment in favor of His kids. He is going to make that judgment one day, and it will be final. And it will be a judgment that is not going to be undone by anyone or anything. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Hallelujah. God watching from heaven says, you know what? I've had enough. Satan has had his way with mankind for as long as I intend. I'm done. I'm not taking it anymore. And I am bringing judgment to the earth. And my saints, those who love my name, are now going to take possession of the kingdom that I promised them. That day's coming. It's yet future to us, still in this day. And thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it to pieces. The ten horns are the ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. So it's very clear that the fourth kingdom comes back. And he shall be different from the first ones and subdue the three kings. And he shall speak. And he goes back now to focus in on those pompous words that the little horn that speaks with the pompous words is in essence the ruler of this last kingdom against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. And so he gives a picture of the power of the Antichrist in the last days. The Antichrist is going to have tremendous power. He's literally going to try and change, if you will, the way the world spins. He's going to attempt to change the law. I believe the law that's being spoken of here is the law of God. He's going to try and do away with the law of God. He's going to say, you know what? We don't need this Christian thing anymore. We don't need this Jewish thing anymore. After all, look at my world religion and look at my world governance and look at my world monetary system and what do we need this Judeo-Christian ethic for anymore? 
Let's just change it. Let's get rid of it. Let's dump it. That spirit is in the world today. And sadly, I say to you that that spirit is very alive and well in our country today. People don't want to hear the truth. People don't want the word of God to to be the standard whereby we live our lives. And that's the reason we're fighting the fights that we are right now in our country. That we're debating the things that God has already plainly declared are his wishes, his desires, his way. And so he says that this one who speaks pompous words, which is the Antichrist, who is against the Most High, shall attempt to change the law of God. He's going to try and erase from the face of the earth all evidence that God was ever involved in mankind. That will be the plan of the Antichrist. So anything that begins to do that is, if nothing else, it is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's alive and well in our world. And it's alive and well in world religions. It's alive and well in governments. That spirit exists today. And strangely enough, that will be the thing that's going to actually unify the world to make it ripe for the Antichrist to take control. So when you talk about globalism being a good thing, you're loose in the caboose, spiritually. Globalism is not a good thing. It is a tool of the Antichrist. Does that mean that we hate other nations and we want them to do poorly? No. But what it does mean is when all of the nations of the world begin to give up their sovereignty, favoring a single governing organization like the UN or the World Courts or the World Bank, that is a bad thing as far as the world's concerned because it means we're getting near the end. It's kind of good for us as Christians because it means we're getting near the end. That the rapture may occur at any moment. But what he's saying here is as you look at this, then the saint shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. In other words, for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, The Antichrist has come on the scene. He's a political ruler. He's a religious ruler. He is a monetary ruler. He gains control of the entire earth and everyone on it. Notice what it says, because what's at stake here is all the nations and languages and tribes and tongues. And the Antichrist says, hey, can't we all just get along? You know, here's your bank of the Antichrist card. It's all you need to buy anywhere in the world now. No, it's not going to say that. It's going to say some really catchy, you know, world-governing thing on it. And oh, by the way, you know, we can't have you disagreeing. So you Muslims, you're going to join this religion. And you Hindus, you're going to join this religion. And you Christians, there's not many of you left on the earth. Matter of fact, we kind of don't like you at all. But we're going to let you in. But you got to join our religion. And the saints shall be given into his hand. In other words, the Antichrist is going to fight tooth and nail against anyone who names the name of Christ. One of the odd things that we often forget with regard to the last days is that when the church is raptured out, there's something else that's going to happen. Though we're gone, we're in heaven, we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb, what's going to happen right at that time, I believe, is a massive revival. Because there are going to be people to whom you preach the gospel who have not received Christ the moment you exit stage left or stage up in this case. 
Which you ever thought about that? Up is everywhere when you're talking about Earth. So it's got a direction, but not really, because up could be down for us. If you're on the other side, it's up. Just thought I'd get you messed. We're up. We're out of here. We, we, we've gone. But imagine all those people that have really not ever received Christ. They're here. But they all of a sudden, oh my goodness. They were right. What they said is true. Millions of them have vanished. They're not here. They're, they're gone. Whole church died. Simultaneously. I guarantee you, there are going to be people peeling out Revelation going, I think it said something about that in the end. Go to the end. Read the end of this. Oh no. Three and it. Uh oh. That's really bad. And you start, but they're going to know that to deny that truth is going to cost them an eternal damnation. And I believe that there are going to be many people in that very last days. We know the whole nation Israel, because your Bible says so, that in the last days that the children of Israel will come to a, a saving knowledge of, of the Lord and Savior, their Messiah. All Israel shall be saved, is what Romans 11 says. Doesn't mean every Israelite. It means the nation, generally speaking, as a whole. And so during that time, it says that the saints will be given into his hand, the Antichrist's hand, to be dealt with for three and a half years. But the court shall be seated. <laughs> God's going, okay, you get to do your thing. But the court seated, and they, why does it say they? Because they're the ancient of days, and there's the Son of Man. They, God the Father, Jesus the Son. Judgments have been given by God the Father to Jesus the Son. But they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, amen. That one day... The enemy's going to have his heyday, and it's going to get worse than it is right now. Infinitely worse than it is right now. But it'll also be short. And the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High God. That kind of excites you. excites me. I like being boss. It's good to be boss. You You get all the perks. You get all the perks. I mean, really, I mean, who wants to be a flunky? You realize in God's kingdom, you're all priests and kings. Every last one of you. You get to rule and reign in righteousness with Christ in his kingdom, which it says you get to rule in. That's pretty awesome. When I think about that, I'm like, yes, bring it on. There's going to be a lot of chiefs and no Indians, but it's going to work. I can't say that. No Native American people, no Native American persons of any kind will all be chiefs. It should be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. Amen? 
Amen? Yeah, see that? See what Daniel said. That's why when we get to the book of Revelation, it's just like, well, we already knew that. If you know the book of Daniel, you know what's coming in the book of Revelation. That's why I said Daniel is the key to the book of Revelation. And to this, it is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. Yeah, I'm guessing it would. Because he sees this, this dominion shift. He sees this great war. He sees the saints of God turned over to somebody who speaks pompous words, who is up and out of that last world kingdom that is revived again. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. You see what it says here as we wrap this up tonight. Because Daniel was no casual observer in this. He wasn't going, well, that was kind of a cool story. You know, wow, you know, maybe I should make a movie out of that. I'll call it The Son of Man. And it'll star Kevin Costner and Glenn Close is somebody, I don't know. Just the two names I could think of. It wasn't like that. It wasn't something It's just like, okay, it's over. You ever had those dreams to where they're relatively real in your head and you wake up and you go, whoa, that boy, sure glad that wasn't real. You know, you wake up and it was real while you were asleep, but then you wake up and you go, oh, and the dog's licking you in the face. Okay, the dog slobber's real, dream not so much. In this case, the dog slobber was not real. It was the dream that was real. It was the vision that was real. He was seeing it as if it were a, a, a documentary of things to come that was playing in the, you know, the theater of his mind, if you will. He's watching it unfold and he's going, oh man. God the Father is giving the judgment over to Jesus the Son. That kingdom's going to be eternal. There's going to be this gigantic war. And at the end, God's going to come through and Jesus is going to judge the earth. And the saints of which he was one were going to come and rule and reign. I mean, this is like the stuff that you can't make these things up. The kingdoms, as he watched, very similar to what the book of Revelation describes. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 and says, After this I looked and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. You see, that, that's why you need to know the book of Daniel before you look at the book of Revelation. Verse 14 in Revelation 7, And these, speaking of the saints, are those who have come out of the great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there's going to be a whole bunch of folks that get saved during the, the tribulation but it's going to cost them their lives. A vast majority of them are going to be, get saved, get killed. Give their life to Jesus immediately to heaven because they get done in by the Antichrist and his army. The last three and a half years is going to be hell on earth. Great number of Israel. Zechariah chapter 13 tells us that, that a great number of the children of Israel will be saved in those last days. The book of Revelation tells us that in these last days in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, and yet one-third will be left in it. 
That's a lot of folks. That, that would be in excess of four and a half billion people if it happened today. Now, we've had a couple of world wars. We, we as a nation uh, almost lost half a million lives in the Second World War. Think about four and a half billion people dying, being destroyed. And so the signs of that, and that's what I think we can draw from this as we, as we close, whether you're talking about the little horn here in chapter 7 or the stern-faced king that we're going to see next in chapter 8 or the ruler who will come in chapter 9, the Lord wants to drive home the point of this last world ruler that's going to come against God. Uh, the, the king who does as he pleases will be in chapter 11. So in, in four of the remaining chapters, the Antichrist is a focal point. Someone that we need to understand what his goals are. What his goals are is, is in essence, globalization of everything. Every aspect, really, of life. Of how we worship, how we spend our monies, ultimately how we're governed. Now, right now, that seems like a really good thing to most of the world. Matter of fact, most of the world is trying to get there. Our president currently has more than a dozen prospective laws that he has placed before the, the UN to turn over part of the governance of this nation to the UN. Well, you know, with regard to banking, we think, we think it should be governed a little more globally. With regard to population control, we think there ought to be a global standard for that. Our own president currently is doing that very thing. You know, we don't want to stand out. We want to kind of blend in. The enemy of God, that's a sign that the end is near. If it happens, make sure your passport to heaven is stamped. Keep it with you at all times. Tuck it in your back pocket. Kingdom of God. Fourth beast, its, its leader, the Antichrist, is going to be different from all the other kingdoms. At first, he's going to just invite the world to come join him in his wonderful global stage. It's going to make everybody happy. Everybody's life will be immeasurably better for a while. There's an interesting thing that's not often talked about with regard to both this passage and then its corresponding passages in the book of Revelation with talking about those very last days. We don't exactly know how long from the rapture of the church to the beginning of the seven years is. It's not actually said in Scripture. We just know the tribulation is going to be seven years. So there could be a time of... of of this type of thing existing that's prior to the rapture of the church and prior to the tribulation itself. And so the more we see these things start to come to pass, the closer we have to be to the rapture of the church. That could mean at any moment we could be out of here because these things are happening now in a way that they've never happened before. 
If you go back, go back to the Second World War, these things were unthinkable 60 years ago. They were unthinkable. There wasn't even a vehicle whereby it could happen. There were no truly global communications. There was no possible way for us to even think about a global monetary system. A vast majority of people didn't even have a bank account in the 1930s much less a way to purchase globally. And yet now when we look at the world around us, there is huge talk. Our president is for a cashless society. Did you know that? He is for a global cashless society where you simply carry around a card. That card has your medical records on it. That card has your banking records on it. That has your work history on it. It's got all of everything about you is on that card. And you just simply go through and scan it. And it debits your accounts. And they're also talking about doing away with passports globally. We'll all just be citizens of the world. That could not have happened. Really, up until about 15 years ago, at the very, very earliest. But we now have those technologies in place that would allow for that. We now have people actually talking about it. We have the nation Europe rising up as it's never risen up before. Yes, it's in financial distress, but that actually plays into the Antichrist's plan because he's still got to unify it. He needs to condense it. He needs to boil it down to something that's manageable by these ten kings, these ten rulers. And then he steps in and says, well, that's not working too good, so I'll just take it from here, guys. And we're going to make it a bigger picture thing. You ever wonder why everybody talks about the big picture all the time? Talks about the global community all the time? How we're all citizens of this little blue ball floating through space? It's all part of the Antichrist plan. Has to happen for him to come on the scene and for him to be able to rule. Interesting that as... Revelation chapter 12 reminds us the Antichrist is going to make war on all who obey God, including the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that have been saved out of all 12 tribes. Amen? So here, here are these guys. Now I can tell you something that you need to, you need to know because I have a Jewish friend who is also a believer in Jesus Christ. He's a completed Jew. Actually, you guys have had Dr. Walter Bramson here who's also a completed Jew. There is no one more on fire than a completed Jew. Because they get the old and they really get the new. Because they really hated the old and the new is a whole lot better than the old. So if you can imagine in the last days when the Antichrist has come on the scene, he said, you know what, I just love you Jewish people so much. And oh, by the way, you can build your temple in Jerusalem again. I know you've wanted to do that for about 2,000 years. And so go for it, build your temple. You just worship God, man. You are do those things. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he says, no, by the way, not so fast. I actually want you to worship me. They're going, oi, vey! And they throw their hands up. What's this? You know, they're, the high priest comes out, and he's murdered and drug away. And everyone's like, I can't believe it. He's defiling the temple. He goes in for himself. They're going to know then because they have the book of Daniel. They're going to look at the book of Revelation. Uh-oh. 144,000 of them, just like that, going around the world. Hey, look out, he's here. It's all part of God's plan. That's why I know 
nobody's ever going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. It isn't going to happen. Because your Bible says it's not going to happen. Once they enter into the land, once there are people speaking the same language again, the next thing that happens prophetically is all Israel gets saved. They're going to go through a time of tribulation. They're going to be saved. But it's going to happen in the face of great globalism. It's right now. It's happening before your very eyes. Revelation chapter 12 says that woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you and filled you with fury because he knows his time is short. When it finally starts to unwind and unravel, uh, the enemy's going to pull out all the stops. He's going to say, you know what? My time's short. I know I can't get them all, but I'm going to try and get some. And it's going to be unbelievably horrible. Isaiah 50, or excuse me, Isaiah 5, verse 20, tells us kind of how that man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will will speak. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It says that in the last days, the Antichrist will reverse everything. Isn't that exactly what's going on right now? Evil is good. Good is evil. Can you believe what's going on in the world right now? It's exactly what's happening. If you actually believe in the Bible, you're actually evil. You're part of the, you're, you're the cause of the problems that we have in the world. That, that is a common thought process in the world right now. Bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. The humanist point of view that, that love is about chemistry and emotions. We're going to look at that, by the way, on Sunday, very, very, very carefully. That's ripe for the Antichrist. Nobody knows what's up anymore. Evil's good, good's evil. Sweet's bitter, bitter's sweet. Light is darkness, it says. And isn't that the truth? And consequently, darkness, light. People who are immensely dark are looked up to. Staggering how many evil people actually have a following. You look at some of the music industry. These people sell tens of millions of albums for $15 a piece, and they're nothing but filth. They're absolutely vile, disgusting, vulgar filth. And yet people spend hundreds of millions of dollars idolizing people who are actually stone-cold evil. And it's like, oh, did you get that album? Yeah, oh, it's so great, man. He blew his brains out and he killed that other girl and raped whoever. And, oh, man, it was awesome. Your Bible says that's the end times. Because it wasn't like that not very long ago. Most of the most of the rap artists today would have been jailed in the 1950s. They would have been thrown in jail and locked up for a very long time. It's happened that fast. Praise the Lord that God's watching from heaven. Remember how we started? 
He's sitting there. Matter of fact, Scripture says that God laughs at the calamities of man. Not in the sense that he doesn't care. He's like, really? Are you kidding me? They think they can do that and get away with it. The Antichrist rises. God's going, no big deal. Jesus is coming again, family of God. It says in Revelation 19, verse 11, And now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Amen? And whose name was, guess what his name was? The Word of God. I know who that is. John 1 1 tells me who that is. He is the Word. He was from the beginning. He was with God the Father. And He is the Word of God. And one day He's coming back. He's going he's gonna to take this rock back because it belongs to Him. Amen? His eyes were a flame of fire. And on His head, remember of the world's kingdoms, there were many heads. And one crown for each. But on His head, the Son of God, many crowns. When you sing that song, crown him with many crowns, that's what it actually means. It's actually the word diadema, diadems, the crown of glory. Jesus is so worthy of glory that when he comes back, he's going to have a stack of crowns. Not one crown, so many crowns. I don't know how far they go up, but it's going to be a long ways. He's still going to be able to ride that white horse. It's interesting that Revelation 19 says that he has a name written on him that no one knows except for himself. And I think it's a it's a it's a little bit of a, a light into his identity. Because we all know him as Jesus, amen? But when he's coming back, they're not going to know him as Jesus because he's coming back to judge them. He's coming back to judge the earth. You don't want to be around for that. And you don't want anybody you know to be around for that. Praise the Lord for his view from heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, which is true. And it is yes, and it is amen. And we declare it, so be it, Lord. And even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We thank you, God, that in these last days, as the world waxes worse, Lord, as good and evil swap places as bitter and sweetness become polar opposites the other way. God, we know that you have it all in view, that you're not wondering what to do. You've already in heaven decided what will be done, and you know the day it will happen. May we be found faithful, our lamps filled, our wicks trimmed. May we be waiting for our bridegroom to come from heaven to get his children. Lord, may we, your bride, be clothed in white and ready for you. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen and amen. He is King of kings and Lord of lords.